This morning, we have the privilege of celebrating the baptism of covenant children, and we need to talk about baptism every time we do this. And we need to talk about our unity as a church every time we do this. So let's start by talking about baptism. Baptism was instituted by Jesus when he gave the Great Commission. Everybody knows the Great Commission? Yeah? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So far, so good. We good so far? Okay. So here at Church of the King, we all believe that baptism is for those who have seen their, repent, their sin and repented of it and turned to walk in newness of life in Christ. It is their public profession of faith. And it is a sign and seal of their union with Christ by faith. Just like when Abraham, who was an older man and a Gentile, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and then afterward received the sign of circumcision, which as we studied together in Romans 4, about six or eight months ago, the Apostle Paul says, was a sign and seal of the faith that he had. We also believe that, like circumcision, baptism does not do anything spiritual to you in the act in and of itself. It does not wash your sins away with water. It does not wash away original sin. It does not give you new birth. Only the blood of Jesus washes away our sins. Only the Holy Spirit gives us new birth, and this is through the preaching of his word. And it's faith that matters. It's by faith we are saved. This is what Romans has been teaching us from looking to Abraham, right? So far, so good. All on the same page. Okay? Not anymore. Because next comes the disagreement. Okay? <laughs> And that disagreement is that some of us in this room, in this church, believe that baptism is only for believers. And I, and some of the families in this congregation, believe that the sign of baptism doesn't just belong to believers, but it also belongs to their children. That just like Abraham was a Gentile who believed and was circumcised at 99 years old, and then was commanded by God to circumcise his whole household, and to pass on the sign and seal of his faith to his children, to the children he was going to raise to trust and fear the Lord, we ought to pass on the sign and seal of our faith to the children God has given us to, trust, to raise to trust and obey the Lord. Because in the sign and seal are represented to us God's promises. Now again, I've never argued for that position from the pulpit because I've been intent on preserving our unity together as a church. And I don't want it to become a thing of primary importance in this church, something that divides us. But I also understand that whenever we do this, our first principle, we just got done uh, uh, teaching a membership class this morning, and our first authority, our first principle is what? It's Scripture. And so some of you are like, what you're doing is not in the Bible. And so I have to make a defense and say, this is a scriptural practice or we believe that it is, even though we're willing to disagree over it, okay? So I'm going to present a brief case, okay? And I'm happy to talk more about it after the service. But I'm going to make the argument again, and I'm going to keep it short. So in Romans 4, as we have studied, 
The Apostle Paul argues that salvation is by faith alone. Amen? Okay. To build his argument, he turns to Abraham. And he lays a foundation for salvation by faith alone from the book of Genesis. The New Testament is like this. It's constantly arguing from and building on the Old Testament. It's not throwing it out. The Old Testament's not abolished in its entirety and done away with, even though some aspects of it are what we call abrogated, changed. It's built on. The foundation is built on. That's because the Old Testament is promises made. The New Testament is promises kept. Okay? So the New Testament authors are constantly working to show us that everything we're talking about here, it's all rooted there in the Old Testament scriptures. It always was all along. That's why Paul's arguing from Abraham. Today he's going to argue from Elijah and Isaiah, okay, in our passage that we're going to study together in Romans chapter 11. Okay, now in Romans 4, what's the point? The point is that our faith is the faith of Abraham. Abraham was once a Gentile. He believed before he was circumcised. So it's not about circumcision. It's about faith. Always has been. He's the father of our faith. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. Now let's all praise the Lord. Right arm. There we go. Yeah, one. I got one. Oh, you, you gave it to me too? All right. Both sides. All right. Okay. This was always the plan. In Abraham, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. That was God's promise. The Bible's always taught that. It was all there all along. That's part of what the New Testament, that's part of what Paul's arguing. This is always the plan. And a lot of the Jews were like, well, we don't want that to be the plan. Did I just spill a bunch of water? Or is it just sitting on here? Okay, cool. All right. All right, cool. Kind of. So in Romans 4.11, it says this, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, some of you have, uh, may have been taught that circumcision was purely a physical mark of a purely physical people or a political people, and that baptism is for a spiritual people. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the New Testament teaches. Okay? Circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. Okay? That's what Paul says in Romans 4. It symbolized all the same things that baptism symbolizes, faith and new birth. And we see that especially true, uh, in the New Testament when Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, uses those two interchangeably. So listen. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism and circumcision are both signs and seals of being part of God's covenant people. They symbolize the same spiritual realities. Circumcision was for God's people living under God's promises, and now with those promises fulfilled in Jesus, baptism is for all of God's people today. It is the entry point where we visibly align ourselves with Jesus and his people, and with us, our households. Here's the thing. God commanded that Abraham circumcise his children, even though it was a sign and seal of the faith that he, Abraham, had. 
Why did God do that? Didn't that just confuse things? If God wanted to be clear that everybody needs their own faith and to be born again, why not save the sign until the kids believed? Well, God's a God of covenants and a God of families. And God likes to work through families. And God wanted to instill it in his people, the idea that he will be a God to you and to your children and to your children's children. I shall be your God. You shall be my people. These are the kinds of things that he says over and over again. Ruth was echoing that when she said to Naomi, your God shall be my God and your people shall be my people. It's called kesed, covenant love. And then God commands him or his people to teach their children. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And we maintain nothing's changed. We're to raise our children like that. He taught that fathers were responsible for the spiritual condition of their households, and that hasn't changed. Whole families were blessed or occasionally suffered together. Together. It's true of everyone from Adam. Adam sinned, and so in Adam all have sinned, right? On down the line. And it's true of how we are in Christ. If you're in Christ, his righteousness is credited to you. The same way that Adam's sin is credited to you. Again, this is just what we've been learning as we've studied Romans, right? Okay? So for millennia, this is what I want you to think about. This is how God trained his people, the Jews, to think. You believe God, you come into covenant with God, you receive the sign of faith, you pass it on to your household while you teach and train your children to live by faith. And when Gentiles occasionally converted before the time of Christ, that's what happened. They were circumcised their whole house. They gave their children the sign and seal of faith because it taught them that they too had to live by faith if they were going to remain part of God's people. So we come to the New Testament with all of that training and all of that background, all of that thinking about how God works in families, and we come to the day of Pentecost, and what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He reaffirms that God's promises are not just for us, but for our children too. Then when we see baptisms in the book of Acts, what do we see? We see whole households being baptized. We never have any indication that children are excluded. No one stops and says, now listen, I know that normally for the last several thousand years, if you converted, you would be expected to give this sign to your children. But hold up, God's doing something different, so don't do that anymore. We never see that. Of course, when it comes to circumcision, not every Israelite who was circumcised had true faith, right? Right? That's why God's prophets would call God's covenant people to embrace inwardly the signs they had received outwardly. Circumcise your hearts. That's part of the argument that Paul makes in Romans 2. Not all Israel is Israel. It's part of what we're talking about today as we return to Romans 11. It's always been about faith. It's just always been this way. In the same way, in case it isn't clear... Those of us who do baptize our babies do not believe that God guarantees their salvation. 
any more than he guarantees the salvation of anyone who was ever circumcised or any adult who's ever been baptized. Saving baptism only for believers does not guarantee us a pure church of people who truly believe. So we stand on the covenant promises for our children. Okay, it's a big topic, and here's what it comes down to for us today. There's, there's my case, okay? Some of us in this room still haven't thought too much about baptism. Sorting things out, figuring it out, and are happy to have space to do that. And a lot of what I just said is overwhelming and like, whoa, I never thought about it like that before. If that's you, we're not here to be rocket scientists at this church. We're not here to be ultra nerdy Bible scholars, okay? We're here to love God and to love our families and love each other. And you're welcome here. There's space for you to figure this out, okay? Some of us in this room uh, look at all this and say, okay, I get it, Jake. God's promises are for me and my kids, but I still want to see an explicit command of God somewhere in Scripture saying, yo, baptize the babies, baptize the children, and I don't see that. God was very specific and intentional when he was talking about circumcision. Where's that specificity? Where's that intentionality? Where's that directness with baptism? I don't see it, and so I'm hesitant to baptize my children. My commitment to Scripture needs, I, means I need to see something more. Okay, if that's you, you're welcome here. Okay? If some of us in this room look at all of this and say, okay, God taught His people for thousands of years to think this way, that the sign of faith belongs to believers and their children. Throughout the New Testament, God establishes that faith is the faith of Abraham. It's all one and the same. He also makes it clear that circumcision and baptism symbolize the same things. His promises is still for our children. First Corinthians says our children are holy based on all of that based on how God instituted circumcision, how he trained us to think, how he trained us to think co covenantally, the burden of proof is the other way around. We need to see some explicit statement from God saying, stop doing things the way that they've always been done, the way that I taught you to do them for thousands of years. Now, I'm loading it a little bit, but that's what we would say. And I know because I'm saying it. <sighs> you called me on it. <laughs> Okay, look, I could go on. We could talk more about Scripture and church history, but here's all I ask, okay? What I ask is that we agree that this is a subject that's not as clear as any of us would like. Yeah? Yeah? Okay? Okay? We all agree that if it were the will of God, it was no trouble for the Holy Spirit to put in black and white in the pages of the New Testament, baptize the children or do not baptize the children, right? And yet, it pleased him to not do that. It pleased him to not do that. In those places where there's some gray and there's some difficulty, those are the places where we are challenged to live with one another in love. And we as a church are committed to doing that, okay? And so, we are going to agree to live in peace at the places where there's not perfect clarity. And you're allowed to think it's perfectly clear. It's possible I might think it's perfectly clear. Okay? But we're going to agree to disagree and live in love. Okay? Because there are many more, in places, uh, more important places right now where the battle is raging against God's truth. 
And that's where we stand together, right? And so I do ask that we all commit, no matter what we believe about baptism, to raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and embracing all of God's promises for them and standing on those promises, okay? And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the sermon. We're going to do our part to see that the children of this church are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord together, okay? Okay, so all that said, we have children this morning that are being baptized. Bring them on up. Good morning. Are you ready for part two? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the gift of children, mindful for, of uh, the many children um, in this country who to this day uh, don't make it out of their mother's wombs, sometimes by the evil and wicked choice of their parents and sometimes um, for other reasons. We pray that you would be near to those who grieve and, to mourn, and who mourn. We pray that you would protect the children in the wombs of uh, their mothers in this church and bring them safely uh, to us so that we can raise them in the fear and admonition of you. We pray for the children of this church that they would grow strong and godly in Christ Jesus and that you would help us to love them and to care for them and help us to help each other, that you would strengthen us where we're weak, that you would be with their teachers today as they love and care for them. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we study your word and that you would give me faith and strength and wisdom as I preach. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this week we are back in Romans. And like I said, we're going to keep it pretty short because we've already had one sermon and we got this sermon and then we've got communion, which is its own sermon in and of itself. Um, so if you wanted a full sermon, you could have come to uh, uh, the membership class and then you would have gotten one instead of three mini ones. Um, okay, so here we are in Romans and here's the question that we're dealing with. The world has a problem and the problem is sin. It's us, right? We spent months talking about the problem of sin, the problem of us. And if you're new, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons uh, from the beginning, because it is the foundation of everything that we're talking about. And you can't really understand where we're at unless you've, this is an argument that's just been building and building and building. So the problem is sin, and God purposed to save us from all sin. And the way God's plan and purpose worked was he chose and set apart a man named Abraham. And through that man named Abraham, a people called Israel, through whom would come a Savior, a Messiah. And his name is... We're really excited about that, aren't we? His name is... Jesus. His name is Jesus. And he came not only to save Israel, but to save the whole world. So that then led to a question in the course of talking about this through the book of Romans. Why are some people not saved? And the question behind that question is, why isn't all of Israel saved? Why do so many of Abraham's descendants reject the Messiah? Because that's what happened. Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him. People of Israel hated him. 
put him to, and had him put to death. So the early church was comprised largely of Jews at the start. It began in Jerusalem, but the plan was always worldwide denom, uh, do, dominion, domination, denomination. No, that's not it. The plan was always worldwide domination, global conquest. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So the good news of Jesus goes to the Gentiles and Gentiles starts to come in and many, many Jews continue to reject Jesus. And that led to some questions. The first real big question about those who aren't saved was have God's promises failed? Okay, and that's where Romans 9 begins. Have God's promises failed? Good answer. Thank you for that. No, God's promises haven't failed. God saves who he means to save, right? Second question then, though, is, well, is that just? Is that fair? Kind of doesn't feel fair. And that's sort of the rest of Romans 9. And the answer is, yes, of course it's fair because God is God. God does what he pleases. God is always good. We're still responsible for ourselves. We've been warned. And it's God's prerogative to do what God wants. And in the end, put your hand over your mouth and be quiet and accept it. Okay, so today the question is a step further down the line. Did God reject his people? Did God reject them? Did he cast them off? So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 11. That's where we begin uh, in verse 1 today. Romans, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. No. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Okay, so has God rejected his people? No. No, he hasn't. Now, Paul's going to answer this question a couple different ways throughout Romans chapter 11. So the first kind of way he's going to circle around it is say, first of all, God's not completely rejected his people. Like, we can acknowledge that there's an apostasy, that something's gone bad here. But can we also acknowledge that God's not completely rejected his people because, yo, I'm here. I'm here. I'm, a, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Not me. This is Paul talking, right? Anybody in this room actually of Jewish descent? Yeah, maybe. Okay. I, I've had friends. I know people who have loved Jesus who are of Jewish descent. There's always people. Okay. So his first answer is, first of all, He's not entirely rejected his people because I'm here, okay? Um, that's mostly what we're going to be talking about today. And then we'll go on to some bigger questions about, well, what about forever? What about, like, is it always going to be as intense as it is now? But today we're going to talk about the first part. So here's his answer. His answer is, hey, I'm here. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God's not rejected us because I'm a Jew and I'm here. In other words, no matter how bad things have gotten, no matter how bad they look, God never completely or totally rejects his people. 
This is a pattern. And our job is to see the pattern. Okay, now in Paul's day, many of the people of Israel, many Jews had, in fact, rejected Jesus, right? They were on, uh, they were of the people of God externally, but they did not belong to God in their hearts. Paul's first point is, this is nothing new, guys. This is just the way that things have always been. This is a pattern, okay? Apostasy is not new. Paul's been saying this since Romans chapter 2. He's come back to it here again. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Abraham had physical children, and Abraham had spiritual children, and they're not the same. It's not the same thing. There was Isaac, and there was Ishmael. There was Jacob, and there was Esau. And among God's people, there's a Venn diagram. There are those who are physical children, but who are not spiritual children. Okay, we draw in the circle. Physical children, but not spiritual children. Okay? There are those who are not physical children and not spiritual children. And there's everybody in the middle who are either physical children or not, but who are the spiritual children of Abraham. And that's what he's been saying. It's by faith that we become the spiritual children of Abraham. And that's most of us in this room. We're not physical children of Abraham. But by God's grace, many of us, I hope most of us, are spiritual children of Abraham. Okay? This is the way that it's always been. And this is what he's explaining. It was even true among Jesus' own disciples, right? There were 12 disciples. One of them was not a true disciple. His name was Judas. So even among Jesus' own disciples, you have the 12 disciples. They're doing things. They're identified with Jesus, but one of them doesn't belong to Jesus. So we have a precedent that even in the ministry, not all, everyone who pastors or preaches or leads... Not everyone who, who is ordained is ordained in heart. This is the way that things work. Among those today who call themselves Christians, there are many who do not actually believe in Jesus. We all know that's true, right? We all know that's true. I mean, for goodness sake, I think 15 minutes up the road is the church that had the pastor who was on HBO doing a drag show or whatever, right? Now, thank God they fired him. Okay. But they got to that place one way or another, didn't they? This is the world that we live in. There are those who belong to God outwardly, and there are those who belong to God inwardly, and God looks at the heart. So this morning we baptize kids. These are children who are born into the covenant people of God. Outwardly they are Christian because they're growing up in the Christian household as part of the church. They're part of the covenant people of God. That's good. Better to grow up in church or out of church? In church, right? Better to have Christian parents or non-Christian parents? All these things are good. Growing up in church, having Christian parents, going to a Christian school, having a good youth group, being in the Midwest where everybody thinks they're a Christian. Oh, it says it's good. It's good. It's better than the alternatives. And yet, each of these little babies must still be born again, right? They must become Christians inwardly. They must claim the promises of God for themselves by faith. They must believe in Jesus and walk in the way. Or what does their bag baptism signify? 
only a harsher judgment for those who have grown up under the promises of God and rejected them than for those who have been entirely outside of the faith. So even as we ask these bigger, broader questions, what about those who don't know Jesus? What about those outside the faith? What about the Jews who haven't believed in Jesus? As we are discussing these things through Romans 9, 10, and now 11, everybody in the room needs to be asking themselves a bigger question. Do I believe in Jesus? Does my life line up with Jesus' word? Not perfectly, but am I on a trajectory of growing in godliness? Is my life characterized by repentance and faith and growth, or am I going through the motions, ticking some boxes, cleaning the outside of the cup? Like being baptized and coming to church and taking the Lord's Supper. Does my life look more like Peter or more like Judas? Peter had his failure too, right? Peter denied Jesus. It was a big sin in the midst of a life of faithfulness that he repented of. Judas was put on a front. Inwardly, there was no repentance. Because apostasy has always been part of the people of God. It's a pattern, and that's what he's saying. Esau rejected the blessing and the birthright. This is just the way it's always been. So Paul's first answer is don't kid yourselves. Don't kid yourselves into thinking, oh, something weird's going on here that's never been, you know, we have no precedent for. He's saying, no, this is just the way that things have always been. Not all Israel is Israel. It's always been this way. So let's continue, and we'll see more of that as we go. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, see, what he's saying is there's always those who believe and those who don't. It's always been this way. This is nothing new. Okay? This is his first point. Wait, before we get to anything else, just remember... This is how things have always been. That's what he's saying. How many of you feel like Elijah or have felt like Elijah? You remember the story of Elijah? Well, he's quoting Elijah. Elijah says, I, I'm the only one. They're killing everybody and I'm the only one left. Do y'all remember anything about Elijah? What can you tell me about Elijah? He lived at a pretty awful time, right? The worship of Baal was taking over everything. There were wicked rulers in place named Ahab and Jezebel. Some of the most wicked rulers in the history of Israel. Displacing the God of Israel with Baal worship everywhere and putting to death all the prophets. 
And anybody who would not bow the knee to Baal. It was a horrible time to be a worshiper of the true God. And Elijah felt alone, and he was hiding in a cave. Well, actually, before that, he sets up his challenge with the prophets of Baal, right? Y'all remember this story? It's one of the coolest stories in Scripture. 850, I think. Is that right? They say 850 prophets of Baal. Then to go out to the mountain, and he's like, look, if Baal's all he says he is, have Baal call down fire from heaven. And 850 prophets of Baal are out there cutting themselves up and doing shenanigans and nothing happens. And Elijah goes and he takes the altar and he digs a trench around it and he fills it with water and he covers everything with water and he soaks the wood with water and it's all covered with water. And it is like, uh, before that, he's like mocking them, right? He's like, uh, maybe Baal's taking a bathroom break. You know, I don't know. He's so big and powerful. I don't know. Maybe he's asleep. I don't know. We'll see. And then he does all this to the altar, and then God sends fire, and it consumes not just the offering, but the altar made of stone, and evaporates the water and everything, right? And then he and the people go, and they slaughter all the prophets of Baal. (laughs) Kill them all. And then it doesn't matter. He ends up alone in a cave by himself. And that's where he says, I... They've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left. They seek my life. And God says, there's 7,000 people you don't know about that I have kept. I've preserved a remnant. And God always does. This is the pattern. When things are as bad and as dark as they've ever looked, God still protects and preserves a remnant. So there's a remnant, and Paul is saying, look, I'm here. I'm part of the remnant. I am proof that God hasn't quit, that God has not, in fact, rejected his people. We're just at this stage in the process. This is where we're at in the pattern. And more than that, Paul's not just a Jew, actually. Paul's a repentant apostate Jew. You need to understand that. And nobody would have characterized it that way. But he had turned from worshiping the true and living God. He was the man killing the prophets, right? Elijah's in the cave and Paul's out there hunting him down. That's who Paul was. So there's more to it than him saying, yo, look at me. He's saying, look at me. I was the apostate. I was not just the apostate. I was the apostate who was out there killing the prophets, And look at where I'm writing this letter to you. Don't think God's rejected his people. Just recognize where we're at in the process. God never quits on his people. Okay, so Paul, the apostate persecutor of God, he's proof. And that's hope, and that's a promise, right? Because there are always times of apostasy. There are always times of rebellion. There are always times when God seems to be more rejected than others. And that's a pattern we see over and over and over again throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. It's a pattern we see from the earliest days of the people of God, through the times of the judges and the kings. 
Esau rejects God. The people rebel in the wilderness. Go through the judges. Like the cycle is just over and over and over the same thing, right? Apostasy and rebellion, discipline and judgment, right? You had apostasy and rebellion, then God brings discipline and judgment. And that brings repentance and faith. And that leads to God's blessing and prosperity. And then apostasy and rebellion and discipline and judgment, repentance and faith and blessing and prosperity and apostasy and rebellion. This is just what happens. This is the way the world works. This is the pattern. And God never stops caring for and loving and preserving at least a remnant of his people. He doesn't quit. He just reloads. And so times can look dark. Times can be bad. If you've been paying attention for the last five years, things feel like they're getting better. They don't feel like they're getting better, do they? So how many of you have felt like, I don't know, Things can't get much worse. Maybe this is the end. Maybe this is, maybe this is it. Like, maybe it's over. I guess the only thing that could possibly happen is Jesus comes back because there's no turning the ship around. Felt that way, right? Kind of feels like the end. Can't see where it's going. Well, maybe. Maybe. But things have looked really bad before. Things look bad for Abraham. Abraham, if you remember, had a lot of really big promises about how all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in him through his children that he didn't have at 99 years old. That looks pretty bad. He's like alone. No other God worshipers around. Just Abraham and Sarah, and they're like 100 years old. That looks bad. That does not look hopeful. It looks pretty bleak. Surrounded by godless pagans like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Things look bad. Things often look really, really bad. Things look pretty bad for Joseph. Betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, thrown into prison. Things look bad for Israel. 400 years under slavery and slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, 400 years of slavery, things looked pretty bad. Did not look very hopeful. Things looked bad for Moses out in the wilderness with the rebellious people wandering for 40 years. Things looked bad throughout the book of Judges. Things looked bad for David. First there was Goliath. Then there was Saul chasing him through caves. Things looked bad for Elijah. He thought he was the only one. Things looked bad during the time of Jesus. They did, after all, reject and kill the Messiah. And they did persecute the early church. Things looked really bad and small and pathetic at the time of the Reformation. And here we are. Here we are. It was a big deal when God gave Abraham one son. Wasn't a lot. Things didn't look promising. 
But in the hands of God, one faithful son is a future nation. And enough to bless all the nations of the earth. It was a big deal when God preserved 7,000 from bowing the knee to Baal. 7,000 is not a lot. It's 7,000 times what Elijah thought, but it's still not a lot. It was still small. But in God's hands, 2,000 years ago, the people of God were gathered together in a room. There were how many of them? Do you remember? 120. 120 people gathered in a room in Jerusalem. That's it. 120 people gathered in a room in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Given the task of go conquer the world, disciple all the nations, not much. In God's hands, well, here we are. Here we are. Things often look bad. And yet God always preserves a remnant. He does it. He protects it. He sets it apart. And with that remnant, God reloads and goes out and conquers. God loves to work through small things. Loves it. You see that over and over again through Scripture. That's why it was David who had to go kill Goliath. Do you guys remember the story of Gideon? There's a lot about the story of Gideon. But Gideon was charged with going and defeating the Midianite army. Do you know how many people he had with him? How big his army was? It was 32,000 people. 32,000 people, and God said, that's too many. Too many. Y'all are going to think you did this yourself. Go tell everybody, if you're even the slightest bit afraid, go home. 22,000 people go home, and so 10,000 are left. And God says, it's still way too big. And he whittles it down to how many? 300 people. 300 people, he says, that's about right. And he goes and defeats all of Midian with 300 people. God loves to work through small things because God loves to get the glory. Things often look like death. After death comes life, resurrection. After darkness, light. So here we are. Who here is trying to bow the knee to Baal? Anybody in this room? Anybody here trying to cave to the woke agenda? Anybody here sad that June is over and that Pride Month is gone? If you're sad, we love you and you need to repent. Take heart. God knows what he's doing. We don't know how bad things are going to get. We know that God is God. God always wins. Has God been winning? He has. He has. And he will. And this is just how he works. So Paul is saying, look, okay, there's, we're not going to deny that a lot of Israel is apostate and turned away and rejected Jesus. But we have to know where we're at in the story. And you have to understand that this is the way it's always been, and God always preserves a remnant. Now, when we come back in Romans 11, we'll see more of God's bigger purpose and plan in all of this. But we're not done yet, okay? Because he just wants us to see this is just the way that things work. And that's not even going to stop, okay? 
and it hasn't stopped, right? We see this pattern continuing to repeat and to repeat and to repeat, even since the time of Jesus. Okay, so let's keep reading, and then we'll close. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Okay, so when things get bad, this is what happens. God gives people what they want. He gives them over to their own hardness of heart. It's called a judicial hardening. It's a judgment, and the judgment is a hardening. And that's what Romans 1 says, right? It's a pattern. This happens among those who profess faith in Jesus too. It always has. And so there are whole denominations, whole churches, whole groups of people that have so far wandered away from the true faith that they're apostate. They don't know the first thing about Jesus. And things get really, really bad. And things can get really, really ugly. And the church or a nation or a people enters into a time of discipline and judgment and purification. Let me give you an example. I'm not a gardener or much of a tree person or anything like that. Last fall, I dethatched my yard. Anybody ever dethatched a yard? I had no idea what this was, that it was a thing. Okay, but my dad was like, you need to dethatch your yard. And, uh, and he, I said, I did it. He did it. It's his idea, not mine. Um, but he said, the yard needs to be dethatched. I'm just going to come and do it. Like I'm renting a dethatcher. I'm going to come and dethatch your yard. Um, when you're done dethatching a yard, what does it look like? Oh my goodness. It looks like death. Like you just sort of like churned it to bits. This like, it does not look, it's like, what did you do to my yard? I can't believe anything good could possibly come from this. I have a video of it. I sent it to my brother. I was like, what did dad do? Oh no. It looked so bad. Sort of like uh, some of you had this experience when you were a kid. He had a brother or sister with a pair of scissors or a trimmer who's like, trust me. <laughs> Everything will be great when I'm done. It's like that. It's what it felt like. But trust your dad with the dethatcher because uh, my yard was in bad shape before it was dethatched. And after it, it was in really bad shape and it looked like it was gonna all die. And then in the spring, it came back thicker and fuller than it's ever been. And it's still not in great shape, but man, it is way better than it's ever been. This is what God does. This is what God's been doing. And I don't claim to know where things head next for us as a people, as Americans, for the American church. I just know that this is the kind of thing that God does and that along the way, God always preserves a remnant. Those who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, God always preserves a remnant. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So it's still all about grace. 
It's all about God. God judges in the midst of his judgment, there's still grace because he preserves a remnant. And God always uses that remnant. And so our job is not to bury our heads in the sand and it's not to go hide in caves and say, woe is me and we're just gonna wait for Jesus to come back. Okay? That ain't it. That's how we get further down into the mess. It's with boldness and faith and courage, like the 120 people in that room, like the prophets of God in the past, to go forth with boldness and courage and faith and declare the good news of what Jesus has done. That resurrection and life come from death. There is a broken, lost, dying world that needs hope. A world in rebellion that needs to repent. To do great things in this community and in this city, God doesn't need a lot of people. God doesn't need a lot of churches. He just needs a few people or a few churches dedicated to him and to each other and who will, by faith, proclaim his word and love the lost and be fathers to the fatherless, who will, by faith, call their friends and their family and their coworkers and their neighbors to come to Jesus, to ask if they can pray for them, to invite them to church. And so we don't have to feel small. We just have to see the big picture. We have to have the long view in mind. A multi-generational view. And have to have faith for the work. It starts with us loving and caring for each other in this room. And our friends and our families and those around us. And trusting God to work. Because 120 people... 2,000 years ago is why you're here. And who knows what God's going to do down the line with this group of people. So have faith for the work. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would strengthen us for the work of testifying to your truth, of fulfilling your commission. I pray that you would help us to love each other, to care for one another, and to be faithful to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.